0: Thank you, John. I want you to just take a few seconds to speak to somebody you didn't come to church with, somebody sitting near you. And I want you to answer this question. What's the best place you've been this year, 2016? Now, it's holiday season, so you don't have to be pious. You don't have to say, here in church. Okay? (laughs) You've got 30 seconds. Tell somebody what's the best place you've been this year. Okay. Well, that was an interesting exercise. I picked up some very odd answers. Spaghetti Junction? Ikea? New Street Station? What a weird bunch. Anyway, a young minister was taking his first service in his new church. And he was particularly keen to make a positive impression as he was replacing a much-loved man who'd served that church for over 20 years. He prepared every aspect of the service very carefully and chose for his sermon a Bible passage from which he'd preached to good effect in the past. He put his heart and soul into the service, and everything seemed to go well. So when he stood at the back of church after the service, he was surprised and concerned that people's reactions were, at best, polite. Rather unsettled, he spoke to one of the wardens when everyone else had left. The warden was clearly embarrassed, but explained that people were grumbling that the minister hadn't led Holy Communion properly. I don't understand. I followed the service book exactly. Yes, but the old minister always used to touch the radiator (laughs) before sharing the bread and the wine. You didn't. Now, the minister was puzzled, not surprisingly, but fortunately, his predecessor was now living not too far away, so he was able to arrange to go and see him just a few days later. He explained the congregation's complaints and asked what was the significance of touching the radiator. "'Ah, that,' laughed the old minister. "'I used to touch the radiator to discharge static electricity.' So I didn't give an electric shock to the congregation. (laughs) Now, Holy Communion, or the Lord's Supper, as Paul uh, refers to it, is the focus of today's sermon in our series on the Messy Church at Corinth. And as with a number of the sermons in the series, when we look at the specific cause for Paul's concern, it appears very remote, from our own experience. And yet, as with those other sermons, it has got some broad lessons for us. So I want to look at the passage that we've heard under three headings. First of all, a problem to avoid. Could you move that on, please, Mark? Thank you. Secondly, a lesson to learn. There we are. And thirdly a pattern to follow. Now we see the problem to avoid in verses 17 to 22. In the following directions, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For as you eat, each of you you goes ahead without waiting for anyone else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. I now have to share something deeply personal with you. Unlike many of you, I've never flown anything other than cattle class. So picture me standing in a long queue as you in business class, or maybe even posher, are ushered to the front so that you can board the plane first. Then imagine my feelings as I'm paraded through your section of the plane and I see your big, cushy seats with far more legroom than you need. And then as I squash into my pokey corner, consider my thoughts as I see the flight attendant bring you drinks straight away. As I sit with my bag of crisps, you get a full meal. And finally, to rub salt in the wound, the flight attendant pulls a curtain between us for the duration of the flight. Now that's a pretty good picture of what Paul is complaining about in verses 17 17. To 22. You see, what Paul calls the Lord's Supper was actually very different from what we're going to do a little later, the service of Holy Communion. The early church called it an agape or love feast. You and I would call it a bring and share meal. And it was a great way of building up Christian fellowship. Because at its climax was the sharing of bread and wine as Jesus had taught. But in Corinth, something had gone very badly wrong. The art of sharing had been lost. The rich folk didn't share their food, but they ate it hurriedly in exclusive groups so that they wouldn't have to share their goodies. Some of them were even getting drunk. And meanwhile, the poorer folk had got next to nothing. A school groundsman was marking out the pitch for a football match the following day. The same pitch had been used the previous day for a hockey match. So he needed to rub out the one set of lines and mark out more clearly the other set of lines. But quite early on, he made a mistake, and he crossed from one line to the other. It was only when he'd finished and stood back to look at his work that he realized that he'd highlighted lines of division which shouldn't have been there at all. And that is exactly what the Christians at Corinth were doing they were reinforcing the division between rich and poor, which ran like an ugly line through ancient society just as much as our own. And tragically, nowhere was that more evident than the very occasion at which social differences should have been obliterated. So the problem to avoid Is clear. What about the lesson to learn? I read a story about this man, the Duke of Wellington, and I'm led to believe this story is true. The Duke was, even by the standards of the 19th century, a man of very traditional views. One day, he was in his local parish church for a service of Holy Communion. As he went up one aisle, a very poor elderly man came up the other aisle. The two of them reached the communion table at very much the same time. And the old man knelt down close to the duke. Now immediately muttering began within the congregation and one of the wardens came forward and tapped the old man on the shoulder and whispered to him to stand aside while the duke received the bread and wine. But the duke heard what was said and reached out to grasp the old man's hand. Do not move, he said gently, but firmly, we are all equal here. Paul put it this way in Galatians 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, (coughs) male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, I'd like to think that an incident like that involving the Duke of Wellington wouldn't be repeated in this church. But in our wider life as a Christian community, it's vital to remember that our ministry is not just to people like me, like you. And if some of our activities involve the spending of money, it's absolutely right that we have in place discrete arrangements to subsidize those who would otherwise be unable to participate. One thing we've seen again and again in this series on the Messy Church at Corinth is how even when he has a harsh message to share, Paul seeks to be constructive, to point people to something positive. And we see that again in verses 23 to 29, as he sets out a pattern to follow. I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he gave thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. All should examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without recognizing the body of the Lord, eat and drink judgment on themselves. There are many occasions in everyday life when doing something Seemingly simple makes a powerful statement. A handshake at the end of a business deal. A walkabout by the Queen. The wearing of a poppy in November. For Christians, the sharing of bread and wine is the supreme example of such an action. We're going to do it shortly. And yet I wonder how many of us pause to consider the full significance of what we're doing. It's so easy, isn't it, to go through the motions, to let the familiar words of the service wash over us. I believe that Paul's words In this passage, help us to place the sharing of bread and wine in its full context. In these verses, Paul gives four instructions which help to focus our thoughts. And more than this, they're pretty good guidelines for daily living as a Christian. The first instruction comes in verses 23 and 25 when Paul quotes the words of Jesus. Do this in remembrance of me. And the instruction is simply this, look back. The first Lord's Supper took place when Jesus was celebrating the Passover. At Passover, a little child would ask, why is this night different from all other nights? then the father would tell the story of how the Israelites at the time of Moses were rescued from slavery in Egypt. We in turn should ask, why is this bread and this wine different from all other bread and wine? It's nothing magic. The answer is that it reminds us how we have been rescued from the slavery of sin by the death of Jesus at Calvary. Look back. But Lord Paul's second instruction comes in verse 26 Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Look back, but look forward too. Paul sees the reenactment of the Lord's Supper not merely as an occasion for Christian devotion and fellowship, but a powerful statement to the world at large. And a key part of the problem of the Corinthian Christians' behaviour was the negative public message it sent out. When we share bread and wine, It should be much more than something religious that we do. It should inspire the way that we live our daily lives within the community, whether at home, at work, or at leisure. Look back, look forward. And then Paul's third instruction is in verse 28. All should examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without recognizing the body of the Lord eat and drink judgment on themselves. The instruction is to look within. I heard of an organization which had a full length mirror in its reception area. Above the mirror was a sign aimed at job seekers. Would you hire this person? And Paul's saying something similar to the Christians at Corinth. Look at yourselves. What a mess. If you don't get your life straightened out, the Lord will have to do it for you. And Paul's instruction in verse 28 to look within comes in the context of the dire warning in verse 27. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. So it's vital that we examine our hearts when we receive bread and wine. It's why, as John said, we always say a confession as part of the service. Now, these verses could be very, very negative. But it's important to understand that Paul's somber warning was addressed to people who were blind to their own failings and who saw nothing to confess about them. So if this morning we are those who recognize our sins and shortcomings, we should not hesitate to receive The bread and wine. If these were only for perfect people, let's face it, they go to waste. Paul's final instruction actually comes from outside this morning's passage, from chapter 10, where he, he first addressed the issue of the Lord's Supper. In verse 17 of chapter 10, Paul writes: Because there is one loaf. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. And Paul's instruction here is to look around. You see, receiving the bread and wine isn't just a private matter between me and God. But it's an act which I share as part of a worshipping community. It's the reason why some years ago now, the practice of sharing the peace was introduced into the service to remind us that we are part of a body. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9, we read, two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the one who falls and has no one to help him up. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Tragically, the Christians in Corinth had lost sight of the importance of community and fellowship because they'd lost sight of what Jesus had done for them by dying for their sins and putting them right with God. And that's something which can happen so easily to any of us. A young army officer was put in charge of a group of new recruits. He did his very best to keep them from ambush. And death. But one day, after they came under attack, he had to leave one of his men wounded on the battlefield. As darkness fell, the officer listened from the safety of a trench to the cries of the wounded man. Distraught, he crawled out to drag the man to safety. He was successful, but in the process, was himself shot and later died. After the wounded soldier went home and recovered, the officer's parents invited him to dinner so that they could meet this young man whose life had been spared at such great cost to them. When their honoured guest arrived, he was clearly drunk and he spent much of the evening telling dirty jokes, At no point did he express gratitude for the sacrifice of the young man who'd saved him. When he finally left, the grieving mother cried out in anguish to think our precious son had to die for someone like that. And that's exactly what Jesus did for me, for you, for all of us. Amen.